The latest episode of The Next Five podcast is all about AI and the business travel sector. I speak to Tim LaBelle, head of product for SAP Concur Spend Solutions. We'll have so much data that our travel will be safer. Shelley fletcher Bryant, VP of Advito. AI can certainly contribute to more eco-friendly travel practices. And author and public speaker, Theo Lau. AI can help us predict when it will be a peak travel, more delays, cancelled flights. Listen to the full episode of The Next Five wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy. I have something to admit. I have avoided learning about Brexit. This is partly a strategic choice. Many people at the Financial Times know much more about it than I ever will. And it's partly self-preservation. The story changes every day. It is changing literally as I record this. And yet, I cannot avoid it. We all have to learn about Brexit because the things that caused it are happening to all of us. You may not be interested in Brexit, but Brexit is interested in you. This is Alpha Chat, a project from the Financial Times and the Rhodes Center for International Economics and Finance at Brown University. I'm Brennan Greeley, U.S. Editor for FD Alphaville. This week, Mark Blythe of the Rhodes Center and I talked to two friends of Alpha Chat. Stephen Kinsella is an economist at the University of Limerick. Megan Green, she is the chief economist at Manulife Asset Management. We wanted to know how the simple fact of the yes vote on the Brexit referendum two years ago had changed the U.K. and Ireland and Europe. No matter what happens today or tomorrow, Brexit has already had consequences, economic, political, social. We started in the UK. Here's Megan. So when Brexit first happened, a lot of economists, myself included, thought the UK might go into recession, and actually the economy held up much better than most of us thought. Um, And if you looked at the different components of growth, Um, There was a narrative about how a weaker pound made the UK more competitive, and so it was exporting its way to growth. That actually isn't played out in the figures at all. Um, So that's a red herring. Um, What really happened is consumer demand held up pretty well, but it was largely because the UK consumer was leveraging up. So that's one result that we've had from Brexit already is is the household balance sheet is not as healthy as it used to be. Well, what's driving that? Why would that be a response to Brexit? It's a good question. Um, I think borrowing costs are a piece of it. People trying to, you know, continuing to plow into the property market has been a piece of it. Um, it's a good question. But what we've seen is an undeniable increase in leverage for uh, the household balance sheet. And so that's something that's going to have to be unwound over time. It's not something you're going to unwind while the UK is going through Brexit. But that is going to come back to bite the UK, I think, going forward. I mean, the UK consumer often, often leverages up. Um, that's kind of part of the UK's traditional business cycle. And so this time's not really any different. But, uh, but it does mean that growth has looked a lot better than we all expected. What about job losses? Are they at, at all quantifiable? You know, when we see uh, car manufacturers uh, threatening to pull out or financial firms leaving, are, are these just headlines or can we actually see any Brexit related job losses in the actual numbers? So the labor market has held up better than we expected as well, actually. Um, and, and you've had more wage growth in the UK, I think, than you have in the US. In terms of the labor market, the most important thing, though, is the labor supply. So what you've already seen is um, a bunch of EU migrants who have been working in the UK have have left. Um, and the data shows that very clearly. And so if you're reducing your labor supply, you're reducing your potential growth. And the Bank of England has already come out and said, you know, no matter how Brexit goes, we're going to have to manage the economy towards a lower potential growth. So when we talk about the consequences so far having been mild, is that 
because maybe Brexit is not going to turn out to be such a big deal? Or is it because whatever it is that's going to happen hasn't happened yet? So I think it's partly because it hasn't happened yet and we don't know exactly what it's going to look like. We we still don't even really know when it's going to be at this stage. It might be kicked off a couple more years. So I think it's largely it hasn't happened yet. And all these delays just kind of uh, perpetuate the uncertainty. And so um, I'm saying that the UK economy has held up better than we expected, but it's it's still not doing as well as, as it would have had we not had Brexit. So, Stephen, let let me ask the exact same question of Ireland, which is uh, the UK is Ireland's biggest trading partner. So uh, are are we also looking at Schrodinger's Brexit in Ireland or have there been real consequences already? Yeah, so uh, the UK isn't Ireland's largest trading partner. It's actually Belgium. Um, the UK UK uh, exports uh, as a percentage of uh, of our total exports are about fifteen percent on their way down to thirteen percent probably by the end of this year. So um, it's just a, a very interesting example. You know, in, in sort of nineteen forty five, they were well over ninety five percent of all our exports, and and now they're down at fifteen. Um, but in terms of the effects on the real economy, w- one uh, important aspect is real investment in the UK is actually down a fair amount relative to its trend pre-Brexit. So that, that's, a, that's a thing that's not happening. That's investment in plant and machinery that, we, that simply isn't being made. The other kind of major thing that's happening in the UK is we're not seeing the kind of large-scale government spending that you would see probably in a, in a, in a, in a non-Brexit scenario. The problem is you, these two things don't show up in the data because they, they weren't spent in the first place. Um, in terms of the Irish economy, um, everything's still going gangbusters here. It's uh, Unemployment is, is still falling. We're still the fastest-growing economy in Europe. Um, but everything in, in, in this economy is, uh, all eyes in this economy are bent towards uh, the UK and trying to figure out uh, what happens to individual sectors and individual regions of our uh, small economy um, in the event of whatever Brexit. It is really, really interesting traveling to Europe. And uh, I was in Berlin last week. Um, and it was really interesting that uh, there were kind of four or five people from the UK and, you know, one person from Ireland. And the only thing we talked about was Brexit and um, no one else. And there was people from 120 countries at this conference and no one else really was that worried about it. And it, it is really interesting to, to get that perspective from Europe. This is not a large Sigma event in in uh, Europe, uh, whereas for obviously for, for Ireland and the UK, it's um, it's a structural shock. So that's fascinating. I, I think, Megan, maybe you told me this, that you can see this result in papers on the continent as well, where UK papers are constantly, you know, screaming the latest developments of, of cabinet struggles. Um, and when you go to the continent, there's, they, they just don't care. It's, it's, it's a, it's a sort of middle of the A section event, um, not an A1 event uh, in the newspapers. Is, is that an experience you've had as well, Megan? Yeah, that's absolutely right. If you read the German papers, Brexit is pretty much never on the front page. You've got to dig in there. Um, and I think the Europeans mostly are viewing this as kind of a, a amusing circus to some degree. I mean, they figure the UK just can't figure out what they want. Um, a, a member of the German government told me two years ago, you know, it's going to happen. The UK is not going to be able to figure out what they want. And so this deadline's going to come and we're going to end up telling them, look, here's the deal you've got. You can sort of take it or leave it. And that's kind of what happened when the EU ended up saying, look, we'll extend this deadline a little bit, give you a bit of a chance, but here's what you're dealing with. All right. So we're set up for Mark now. Uh, if it is, in fact, a limited amusing circus with consequences for the UK and Ireland, 
you sent me a paper to read about um, whether Brexit was predictable. And then in addition to that, whether it's now intelligible uh, looking back at it. So if it's a circus, was it an accident? Can we imagine a, a past where a few things went slightly differently and it didn't happen at all? Or was it an inevitable consequence of things that were happening in society in the UK that we just didn't see before the vote? I'd say that the things that propelled Brexit were there and longstanding, whether it's sort of the all the cash goes to London versus the regions, whether it's 10 years of austerity budgets, scrapping public services in northern cities. All of those pressures were there and Brexit was a release valve. But that paper I sent you makes two very telling points. Back in 2015, David Cameron didn't think he was going to win the election outright. He was in coalition with the Liberals, and he ended up decimating the Liberals, completely destroying them, and then coming to power. Now, he previously went and gave a big speech to the City of London, saying basically he was going to use the threat of a referendum to carve out yet another exemption for financial services for the City of London, because we love finance and it's dead important to us. Well, of course, when you do that, you immediately tell the EU you're doing this, and the EU says, well, you're not getting to do that. And because he'd now said that, he then had to go and lose the election, otherwise he'd have to have a referendum. So you can see how these tiny little decisions kind of concatenate into taking everyone into a space that they don't want to go to, and then you have all these pressures that have been building up for a decade and a half, and you give basically the entire sort of, um, let's say, non-cosmopolitan elite of the United Kingdom a chance to say what they think of the ruling classes, who are all being mansplained to about why the EU is the best thing since sliced bread, and you end up with a Brexit shock. So... Let me ask the same question to you uh, that I did of Stephen and Megan, which is that in a political sense, um, even if it's possible to describe uh, Brexit as a political accident, that bell can't be unrung. What has what has changed in the UK because of Brexit that will be true again, no matter what the outcome uh, is in, in you know parliamentary negotiations that are happening as we record in the UK? Well, what you see across Europe as a whole, if you look at the way that politics have been configured now for like a generation and a half, is the decline, if not the collapse of the sort of multi-party systems that govern the continent. So the Italian party system's completely blown up, as we know, by the makeup of their government. Germany has got the CDU, but you've got the right flank taken by the AFD. Macron is this bizarre sort of populist in the centre, which doesn't make any sense, and their party systems collapse. And a large part of what you see in Britain now could be, and this is where Corbyn's angle on this gets very interesting. Basically, the death of the Conservative Party as they tear themselves over, once again, ironically, Stephen can talk about this, over the Irish question in a different form. And that party could easily split regardless of what form of Brexit you get. And then you'll have a situation very similar to Germany, where you'd have a kind of British version of the AFD. Then you'd have a shrunken Tory party. And the winners for that are basically Labour, which goes a long way to explaining why Labour refuses to help. They want the Tories to own this because the destruction of the Tory party is one of their long-term objectives. I lived in London for a decade and was absolutely shocked when I first got there by how incredibly Eurosceptic UK citizens were. I mean, every talk you went to, someone came and ranted about the EU and how it's so far away and imposing rules. And so, you know, I think the UK had already carved out a sort of a very special relationship with the EU. And I sort of think that the UK was always on kind of an exit ramp from the EU. The question was whether it was going to be a hard right or kind of a gradual ramp. And they, they took the hard right option. But I do think, you know, the, the referendum matters in terms of timing. Um, it's much more sudden than it would have been. But I kind of think the, the UK was on its way out anyhow. 
Mark just brought up the Irish question. And one of the things that's been entertaining to read from abroad is how befuddled the British are that Ireland is an independent country with its own goals. <laughs> what have we learned about the way the British see Ireland? Well, I think what we've learned is that they don't see Ireland, right? And um, it is really interesting. They're not educated about it by and large. Um, they, they typically, and by they, I mean both the political class, the media class, and the general public. Um, they're not educated about the, their colonial history. Um, I mean, and this is not simply an Irish question. This is also, uh, you know, if you look at um, uh, the Windrush scandal, or if you look at, you know, uh, uh, treatment of in, in, uh, Indian migrants, that kind of stuff. It, it all, it all points to the same. The, the Windrush scandal. This is this is Jamaicans who moved to the UK in the seventies. Yes, indeed, indeed. It's a really interesting uh, uh, issue because you you very often find you know that it used to be in vino veritas, but now it's in Twitter veritas. Um, because they have, because you have to uh, really have a pithy sentence. Um, you have people often saying, you know, why don't the Irish just come home to the to the Commonwealth, rejoin the Union, and there'll be no border problems? And that's a, you know a prominent MP saying this, and it's it's kind of it's really really interesting from an Irish perspective. Going really, it's been a century. How is this not sort of baked in? Uh, and the answer is because it, it's never really been acknowledged. And the interesting issue about the Irish border. Um, and and these negotiations actually from a, from an Irish perspective, it's the first time since about 1172 that Ireland has had a, a, a the upper hand in, in some of these negotiations, um, and it's it's been really interesting in terms of the border. Uh, in, in addition to that uh, brilliant piece by Colin Hay on existential angst, uh, I just finished reading a book by Thomas Nail called The Border or The Theory of the Border, and it's absolutely brilliant. This idea that there are it, it's a philosophical book about you know how how things change when you move across different lines. And, um, you know, for, for people listening all around the world, uh, when, when, when I was a kid, you would be stopped at the border uh, between Southern Ireland and Northern Ireland. And now you can just drive up and down, no problem. It's a very, very, very complex border um, in geography. Um, and to, and to, to put anything across that border is to invite uh, a very large series of problems. And the railing against the backstop is what the issue there is. And, and to, to be clear, it wasn't just it wasn't just a line and there was Republic below and UK above um, the, the the existence of the border defined politics, you know, on either side of it. Right. So you had smugglers moving back and forth across the border. And because you had smugglers moving back and forth across the border, they were incredibly prominent in the local communities right there. So the border region is defined by the existence of a border and it shifts politics back and forth far beyond the border itself. Right. Yeah, exactly right. And, and, and in fact, uh, even beyond that, the, the local Local economies are actually bent towards either servicing the border or not. Um, there are farms that literally straddle the border. Um, it's a it's a highly uh, it's a highly nonlinear border as well. It's not something you could build a wall across. Like, um, and so it's it's really really interesting as a, as a as a as a as a piece of uh, political study as well. Because while Thomas Nail's book, The Theory of the Border, is all about the Mexican border and the Canadian one, um, trying to write a philosophical treatise about the, the Northern Ireland border would be very, very difficult indeed. And it is interesting that while, of course, we're, we're economists, we're talking about the economics of the border, really a lot of it is the legal issues around, you know, moving cattle uh, back and forth and how you do these these kind of um, um, sanitary checks uh, uh, for, for, for agriculture. And it's really, really interesting how 
the uh, Brexit negotiations have kind of, all of them have boiled down to how do you take the milk out of a cup of tea? You know, like it's it's so they're so integrated now at this point uh, the 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 two economies that that trying to unknit them seems to be you know more than a Herculean task. I mean, we're near we're three years almost uh, out from this, and we still haven't got anything like a resolution. And even if uh, by the time this goes out, even if there is an actual resolution, that's only the first step of this process. There are many more and perhaps harder choices to come for the UK. Stephen, can I jump in here for a second? So one of the things that uh, I heard recently from an Irish uh, person I was talking to was that uh, their commute, they live in the south, but they live in the sort of the western side of the south of the northern Irish border. And if the border went back, the irony is that the EU built a road which made it much quicker for them to get to Dublin. But if they go to Dublin now, they'd have to cross a border into Northern Ireland, drive across Northern Ireland, cross a border to get out of Northern Ireland in order to get to the capital city. That seems to be completely bonkers. Given that, how is the political class in Ireland really trying to get its head around the fact that they may have to do stuff like this? It is really, really interesting because having set your uh, political face against any kind of border infrastructure, you then cannot publicly or even privately really discuss a plan to mediate that person's commute by some kind of either technological or physical barrier. Um, uh, and so what it will mean in practice is if there is no deal, there will have to be a whole series of, oh gosh, we don't know what's happening moments uh, whereby some kind of compromise will have to be reached. And the problem is we are horribly unprepared for any kind of eventuality by virtue of the fact that we've we, we've publicly stated we don't want any kind of border. And so that lack of preparation is shared on both sides, by the way. Um, I'm not aware of any, um, uh, any back channeling or any kind of uh, secret grouping trying to put together a Brexit border plan B. You know, uh, and uh, Ireland's a pretty porous place in terms of um, uh, the policy world. So I, I really don't think there is a plan B working on that. So, um, yeah, it, it is a significant risk, but it's a rhetorical risk that the uh, it's a it is rhetorical gamble. The Irish, the Irish government have actually put themselves uh, into making because any to, to do anything else is to invite a discussion about the future relationship between Ireland and the UK, which nobody wants until the withdrawal, withdrawal agreement is actually sorted. And just to highlight, I mean, a no-deal Brexit that would maybe necessitate the imposition of a hard border is is more likely now, given all the developments. No, nobody wants it, but equally, what we saw with these indicative votes is nobody can, or the UK can't quite work out what else it would prefer. So the chances of not being able to agree anything else are, are higher now. So this goes back to this goes back to Brendan's first point, though. I mean, how much damage has already been done by Brexit? Well, you know, there's the uncertainty effects. We can track, you know, investment spending or whatever. But clearly, even if you know Belgium is now more important than the UK than to Ireland, it's going to hurt. And you've got the whole of the eurozone once again teetering on deflation slash recession. And Britain's still a big economy. And if it hurts itself, it's going to hurt everyone else. So I think we shouldn't discount the fact that even if the Bank of England and other projections have got huge error bars on them and we don't really know, it's going to hurt. There's this question also of um, how much public opinion outside the UK has hardened against the UK. Again, this is a bell that can't be unrung, even if there's magically a solution that makes everybody happy tomorrow. 
Um, P.S. There will not be. But I mean, Stephen, there was that wonderful moment, I think, within the last decade where the Queen went to Dublin. Right. And there was, you know, the, this, this sort of moment of rapprochement where where it, it, the U.K. seemed to be at least acknowledging its colonial history, sort of, you know, knowing that it needed to do the diplomatic work to move forward. Has opinion in Ireland hardened against the U.K. because of all the stuff we've been talking about? Yeah, it is really interesting to note that there was a period when the, the previous Prime Minister, Enda Kenny, uh, uh, visited the UK um, when, when David Cameron was um, Prime Minister. It was sort of, you know, uh, get out the hugs and, you know, come by and let's do the guitar thing. Um, and, and again, you know, the, the Queen, not just visiting Dublin in a state visit, but visiting Cork and going going around and sort of you know there's brilliant pictures around uh cork city of you know just the, just the queen laughing just la- like guffawing laughing with um uh, uh uh fish salesman and that kind of stuff it was really it's really it's really lovely and similarly our president was was um was similarly honored in the uk so it was a kind of fantastic uh time and now we see this kind of anti anti-uk uh sentiment coming up again which is Highly dangerous um, because again, it's it surfaces amongst either a kind of a reactionary, you know, um, uh, song singing kind of nonsense. You know, the, the what what we 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 refer to them in Ireland as headbangers, you know, uh, or or it comes in on on the hard hard right. So um, uh, in in both cases, they justify their behaviour and their appalling rhetoric using a republican lens and it's wrong to do so. And the reason that it's wrong to do so is we've acted essentially as a common labor market for, for you know, almost 100 years. There's actually only been a border between Ireland and Southern Ireland and Northern Ireland since uh, the 1920s, you know, and, and, and since the 50s, we've actually had a common tra- travel area, common work area. So uh, it's been enriching for both countries, uh, despite the colonial history. Well, Megan, let me ask the same question uh, of, of the rest of the EU. Uh, we had talked about how Brexit is a non-event uh, in other countries. It's just not covered on the front page the way it is in the UK, um, and that it seems like an amusing circus uh, from the German perspective. But it also seems like opinion has hardened against the UK on the continent as well. Is is there political damage or is there diplomatic damage on the continent that also can't be undone? Yeah, I think that's probably right, just because the, the UK government hasn't really covered itself in glory throughout these negotiations. So I think um, there is more exasperation than anything else on the behalf of the Europeans. And I think the Europeans feel a bit torn about it. Um, on the one hand, they are quite sorry to see the UK go. It was a relationship that was working for them. Um, You know, I think Ireland in particular, uh, given the common labor market that Stephen mentioned, um, but also amongst other European countries. At the same time, they're a bit fed up. So not so fed up that they, you know, want a hard Brexit or a no deal Brexit, um, but fed up so that they're really not willing to bend over backwards to accommodate this because, of course, All of these other European countries, except for maybe Cyprus, has some kind of populist anti-European party that's done pretty well in recent elections. And so all of these national leaders are looking towards their domestic political scene um, and and considering that in their um, European negotiations over Brexit. They can't let the UK leave and have it be easy because then there will be repercussions across Europe. Mark, you know, uh, Stephen talked about empire, right, that the UK... Uh, has still not come to terms with 
the very recent consequences of 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 its empire. Uh, he talked about you know the Windrush uh, immigrants from Jamaica uh, in in the you know in this century, relatively recently. Um, there are two ways to look at this. Um, one is you know the UK is grappling with its own importance. Um, the other is this is really just about very specific political problems that the Labour Party and the Tories have right now. And all of this is an unfortunate accident because of some very specific things that Jeremy Corbyn uh, and, and David Cameron uh, want or wanted. Um, it, which which is the better framework to use? Is this just a, a, a party political accident? Or is there is there some historical question that Britain is sort of unable to answer right now? Well, you know, why choose? You can have both. I mean, ultimately, as we said before, there are these longer term structural factors to do with inequality between regions and cities and different social classes, etc., which has been bubbling under the surface and was brutally exposed in 2008 and so on and so forth. So all of that's there. So Brexit's an accident waiting to happen. How you get to that accident is the sort of the micro story. And we spoke briefly there about David Cameron giving a speech basically with Bloom on Bloomberg, I think it was to basically say we're going to beat you up unless you give us an exemption of financial services and then he wins an election he doesn't think he's going to suddenly he has to do a referendum he doesn't want to the Labour Party version of the story if you think about it is even more bizarre so there's Jeremy Corbyn he's a lifetime backbencher and the only reason he gets on the leadership ballot is because the people that he's purged, that is all the Blairites, put him on there as a sop to the left with the idea that he'll never get elected. And then he did. And then when May takes over from Cameron, May nearly loses the election to, to this guy. So you think about what would he be his motivation in all this? You know, Labour's getting called out all the time for not helping. Well, why should they? It's not their mess. This is entirely made by the Tory party. And if you're Labour leader, what better than to basically preside over the demise of the Conservative Party, particularly if they split into a kind of, as we said, CDU, AFD scenario, and Labour suddenly occupies not just the left, but also the centre. So you can run all this as a micro-conjunctural story, but you don't have to dismiss the macro drivers at the same time. It's, but the fact that this, is, this type of thing is going on all over Europe tells you this just isn't about idiosyncrasies. The idiosyncrasies get you to the final result, but 80% of it's the structural drivers. Well, and, and it extends beyond Europe, of course. I think there's a lot of common underpinnings behind Brexit and Trump's election. In 2016 as well. So, you know, if you walked around the UK during the referendum and asked people what Brexit was really about, nobody was talking about, you know, the Norway model or the customs union or the single market. It was all about migration, really. It, it boiled down to identity politics, but of course, economics played a piece of it. People felt left behind and were worried that other people were coming in and stealing their jobs. And there's a very similar underpinning in the Trump election story whereby, you know, people felt left behind by technology, globalization, trade, and so um, decided they would vote for the guy who was promising to stand up for them. Um, so it, it's not just Europe, it's, it's the entire developed world, I would say, with the exception of Japan, and that's probably because they don't really have any diversity, they don't have an other to blame, unlike everywhere else. Mark, was it about, was it about migration or was it about austerity? Again, why choose? So what you find if you drill down into the data, which we've now had a chance to do, is that the number one predictor is you have an influx of migrants, check, into an area that doesn't have to be very poor, but needs to be on the decline for a long time. So if you have those ingredients, then you have a natural constituency for that type of anti-immigrant reaction. Things here used to be great. All the kids left. 
Now the only people who we have are foreigners, and we're poorer than we used to be, even if we're relatively well off. Boom, that's it. And you can tell that story in East Germany, you can tell that story in Britain, you can tell that story in the Midwest. That's a very common story. So again, why choose? We have this, I don't know, very strange idea that we have that there's one cause for something, and it's either this or it's that, and if it's that, the other one's wrong. Quite often things in life travel together and reinforce each other. You're being kind, Mark. When you say we, what you're actually talking about is journalists. And um, what you're then actually talking about is editors. No, I'm actually talking about social scientists. Because basically the American debate over this stuff is incredibly polarized. It's either all race, there's a large exogenous rise in the number of racists that can't be explained, or it's all economics, and then race doesn't matter. And that's just crazy. Of course both of these things matter. Well, I mean, ultimately, we're looking for policy interventions, right? When we see problems, <laughs> we're trying to figure out how we can avoid the problems in the future. Um, so one way to look at European Parliament elections um, in, in Europe and, and the UK is that they were always completely irrelevant, except that they gave an indicator of sort of where public sentiment was um, on a country by country basis. In a way, the European Parliament elections have always been basically a local opinion poll. But they also served as sort of a release valve, right? It lets people know where things are going so that they can then adjust. Um, is it possible to look at the Brexit referendum as a, a, a release valve, right? It, it was a, a, a vote out of frustration, and we can talk about all the different frustrations. Mark just laid them out. Um, but is it possible to say, okay, signal sent, there's been an adjustment, now things will get better? So no, I, I don't think that there has been an adjustment. And equally, I think the UK is just as divided on the European question as it always has been. So, um, and and on top of that, if Brexit does go ahead, and that seems likely, it's it's irreversible. So I, I don't think it's just a release valve. I think um, it's a reflection on how incredibly divided the UK is. But it's also a recognition of the misrecognition as to what Britain was. You earlier described them as being on an off ramp. I like to think of them as being on an off-wrap in reverse, because they were never really in. They were never going to join the euro. They were never going to take part in the fiscal compact and all that austerian nonsense. They've got their own currency. They've got a bloated financial sector that clears euros. You get tariff-free access to 60% of your, your markets. This is the best deal ever, and therefore you need to leave so you can have a better deal than that. That's why this was a game of impossibility right from the start. They misrecognized the fact that they had a deal where they were never really in, and they wanted a better deal where they were never really in. Yeah, they. I mean, one way of looking at all of this is that Britain overestimated its bargaining power. Not just its bargaining power, its position in the world. And it's been doing that for about at least 100 years. Exactly. There, there, there are loads and loads of uh, different missteps. But I, I think what, what, is, what is really interesting about the UK is it, the, the parliament decided to ask the people the wrong question. Um, the question was, and, and, and it is interesting that... Um, the UK's democracy, while it did have a, a massive experience in imposing austerity, ironically, um, uh, for, a, for, for a country that had its own currency and as big and as strong as it was to, to impose that much austerity for that long, independent of any uh, uh, external fiscal controls or, 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 or particularly order liberal impulse. It is really interesting um, that they ended up doing a fair whack of austerity themselves. But, but what is really interesting, um, uh, in Ireland, we, we often do referendums. We would do them, I think, probably once, at least once a year, sometimes twice. And um, we have a, a process whereby we try to come up with the question and we 
we try to come up with a legislation that would be enacted should the question um, uh, find its way, uh, uh, should the people decide on what the answer will be. And in the last couple of referendums we've done, we've had what's called a citizens convention. So we've actually had a hundred randomly chosen citizens get around a table and physically think about what the outcomes might be. And then when people are voting, they're voting from the status quo to something else, not a yes, no, in, out kind of answer. We move from option A to option B. So it is really interesting that the form of the question is, I think, what has ultimately divided the people. Had Cameron decided to say, look, here are the various options, Norway, plus all the various things that the UK Parliament just uh, rejected yesterday, all the various no, 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 no's. Um, if they had to come up with a series of them uh, to say, look, this is these are the, the various forms they, that, that will actually take place. Which ones do you want? And crystallize how good a deal they've already had, exactly as Mark just said. I think the vast majority of the very sensible people in the UK would have gone, well, no, we'll just, we'll just keep it a, a, as is. As it was, everything was allowed to devolve into identity politics and the lion roaring and, you know, Boris Johnson and all this kind of nonsense. Um, and because there were no specifics, uh, uh, people's rhetoric was allowed to fill the space. And that's still what's happening uh, even today, which is remarkable. But I mean, everything that you're describing, Stephen, is is sort of what you would expect a responsible party to do within a parliament. Right. All this work of figuring out what constituents want, turning it into precise legislative languages, language, finding a majority for it. Um, in a way, if, if Cameron had really wanted to do it right, that's how he would have done it. He would have come up with, you know, tried to figure out whether there was a majority uh, in Parliament for very specific language of Brexit. But of course, there wasn't. So in a way, we're asking of Cameron historically for a deliberative process that he very specifically and purposefully did not want to put in place. But it is very interesting. If he had have set, spelled out um, a bit like uh, Gordon Brown's tests for joining the euro, you know, like like as Mark said, they were never going to join the euro. Um, if, uh, if he had have spelled out, okay, look, uh, this is Norway plus. It's a pretty... Um, it's a pretty uh, 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 unrealistic version of the EFTA. Here's what the EFTA is. Here's all this you know, complex stuff you've got to get your head around. And by the way, it's worse. We don't get a say in what happens and we have to pay money. And you can have that or you can have what we've got right now. What you choose, guys, and it would be really interesting. He could he could have come back to people and said, "Look, we uh, I, I consulted the people. Uh, the people have decided to stay in. This is the best deal." Um, they could have kept on slagging off, you know, banana regulations or whatever, um, and we wouldn't find ourselves in this situation. And I, I think it is interesting sometimes, and the, sometimes these are issues of kind of fundamental democratic design. Um, that 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 the Brexit uh, process is bounced up against very often. The most recent of which is obviously the uh, Speaker of the House coming back and saying, "No, the design of our democracy is that you can't bring the same bill for various votes uh, again and again and again." Um, and uh, you know, and the Brexiteers are saying, "You're trying to frustrate Brexit," and he's saying, "No, no, no, I'm I'm actually just trying to help you design. Uh, uh, I'm showing you how how the democracy that you wish to." Uh, um, in some sense, subvert is actually designed. And it's a really, really interesting, um, if slightly terrifying, um, case study in all of that. 
I think we also do need to recognize that the, the point of uh, the referendum for David Cameron wasn't actually Brexit. The point was partly to horse trade with the Europeans. It was partly to try to come up with some kind of party unity as well, though. So the, the point wasn't Brexit at all. That's, I think that's partly why it was so poorly conceived at that point. Well, let me let me wrap this up by asking you all the same question. I'll start, Megan, with you, uh, which is we're looking now at some time that has passed since two profound shocks to the system. One of them was the result of the Brexit referendum, and the other one was the presidential vote in the United States. Um, and so it is. both are outcomes that nobody within the political system, among journalists, among social scientists, um, had predicted, except you, Mark, you knew that Trump was coming. But Megan, can we look around now at journalists, at social scientists, at politicians in any country and say, okay, there's a group, there's a person who has learned the lesson and 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 adapted? I wish I could say yes. I think for the most part, the establishment and by by which I mean kind of the elite, so politicians, economists, journalists, um, have mainly looked at Brexit and Trump and um, suggested that, you know, they're all wrong. They make no sense. Um, the prescriptions are terrible. They're economically illiterate. What I think we, it's taken us a really long time to do is to recognize that actually they, they hit on some pretty important issues that we, as the elite establishment, have been ignoring. Um, and so it's only now, I think, that we're starting to recognize those issues and think, all right, well, maybe there's something we can do about that. Things like, you know, inequality, a lack of wage growth, um, market concentration, those kinds of issues. I, I just haven't seen any politicians or governments actually successfully address any of these issues yet. But it, it's at least a start that we're no longer simply decrying Brexit and Trump we're saying, all right, they obviously hit on something because they succeeded. So what did they hit on and how do we address it? I'll offer one and then I'll throw it to Stephen. I, I, I think that um, in the States, economics journalists have learned to cover regional economic issues in a way that I don't think we paid attention to before the Trump vote. And I think that it was we, we were very happy for a very long time to accept hand-waving from economists saying, look, you know, they're going to be winners and losers um, and it'll all sort itself out. I think we are now doing a better job of looking region by region, uh, helped with some social science. I'm thinking of David Otter's work, sort of looking at how trade affects different regions um, and actually doing that work of saying, look, here's a very specific consequence to a very specific group of voters. And it may be true that, um, you know, the average uh, that, 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 that things are better for the average voter, but there is no such thing as an average voter. And these specific people, their community was torn apart by the thing that we're discussing, and they're angry about it, and they don't really care what happened to the average or the median voter. And this is a problem that's worthy of addressing. So I, I think that um, I have seen in my own profession uh, very good work done uh, at Bloomberg, um, at, uh, at the New York Times, sort of looking at a real shift in the way they cover the U.S. Uh, Stephen, uh, can, you, can we look to anyone in any discipline that has learned lessons? I, I, one of the things I think I want to point to is the political system. So serving politicians, people who have to get elected every day, um, they have started realizing, oh my God, we actually need to make a case for the center. We need to make a case for the center being, you know, uh, a vital sort of organ of uh, development because it, that case is being lost because of the detractors from both right and left. And so you see the Irish Minister for Finance, Pascal Donoghue, in a series of speeches has said, look, we kind of need to, we kind of need to realize that 
the bureaucratic system of the state has completely internalized the logic of social democracy. And so uh, uh, because it's done that, we as politicians can, are sort of free to say whatever we like because the system more or less delivers a bit more growth and a bit more state expansion. And he said, no, no, we we keep we need to keep making the case for the center why we should be bringing people together um, in order that uh, people see that Working together is better than being divided. And populist narratives very often fail um, when you have uh, uh, people making the case for the center. So that's been really interesting. And, and Donahue, is, is, he's one example, but there's actually quite a few uh, serving politicians, you know, really thoughtful people who have kind of reacted to this saying, my God, we need to sort of explain why the state matters, why the center matters uh, uh, to people who are who are justifiably disenfranchised by it and, 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 and more than a little annoyed annoyed by its uh, failings since the global economic crisis. Mark. So I'll take a slightly different tack. So Stephen was saying the importance of the deliberative process. In plain English, that's called politics. And what you were talking about was, well, we have these problems. You know, what are the policies? And I think it's a huge jump from one to the other. And one of the biggest problems of the 1990s and 2000s was that the governing classes forgot there was a distinction between the two. In a sense, they gave up on politics. We had the great moderation, the central banks were in charge, banks could do no wrong, everybody was on a tear, and parliaments became basically where you tweeted about how paedophiliacs were bad. There was very little going on in terms of active politics, social movements, talking about the things that actually matter to communities. So you have this kind of uh, narrative of the discrediting of elites. Remember Michael Gove's famous, I think the public have had enough, uh, enough of experts. Well, I think there's something in that we need to examine ourselves as the experts, which is people don't trust us. And they don't trust us for good reason. And the notion that we can identify a problem correctly, better than they can, that we know the solution, we've got some policy that we can pull out of the drawer that's got the requisite RCT score, and that'll solve the problem as if there's some kind of contagion or pathogen rather than our fellow citizens, is something that we really have not begun to get to grips with. Politics is about admitting that not everything is win-win. Politics is about admitting that some things are I win, you lose, and therefore we have to have some kind of political discussion about how we're going to live in that world, rather than this fantasy where we have a policy for everything and politics is the error term in the equation. I think that's part of what we're reacting against everywhere, and I think that it's good that that reaction is taking place. Man, you guys are the best brain trust ever. Thank you. Let's do this again soon. Let's. Definitely. Never. Alpha Chat is produced by Dan Richards at the Rhodes Center for International Economics and Finance and Amy Keane from the Financial Times. Please email us, alphachat at ft.com for any reason at all. For my part, I will start saying you can't get the milk out of the tea. That is a really good phrase. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. 
The latest episode of the Next 5 podcast is all about AI and the business travel sector. I speak to Tim LaBelle, head of product for SAP Concur Spend Solutions. We'll have so much data that our travel will be safer. Shelley fletcher Bryant, VP of Advito. AI can certainly contribute to more eco-friendly travel practices. And author and public speaker, Theo Lau. AI can help us predict when it will be a peak travel, more delays, cancelled flights. Listen to the full episode of the Next 5 wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy.